I was speaking at the Web 3.0 conference in May in New York, and the entire conference seemed to be focused on either the business aspects of Web 3.0 or semantic web or whatever you want to call it, linked data web. Um, you know, we have those problems with controlled vocabularies, terms of controlled vocabularies, right? Um, is it a taxonomy? Is it ours? Um, and then they were also talking about the technologies behind them. But very few people were talking about the content. And I thought, well, what are you running all this technology over? There was only one person in the room who, when I asked the question, raised their hand and said, yes, I am a content specialist out of hundreds. So um, you who know content, how to manage it, you're much needed. OK, so we have schema into which we plug the terms from our various controlled vocabularies. You're all familiar with this. Author, title, subject. I'm sure every one of us knows what the 245 field is, even though we might not. We have uh, accession numbers, shelf numbers, international standard numbers, and still, we're limited to what we can find and how we find it. And that's not just, I mean, this is an old school picture, but it's not just in print, but it's also in online finding aids. And I found this image on Flickr. And it amuses me. It's, it's uh, the card catalog room at the Sterling Memorial Library at Yale. Um, these catalogs, these catalog, card catalogs, are empty. They're just kept around because they look pretty. They could put a bottle of wine in there. Um, I rescued one from my days as an actual librarian at Raytheon and, uh, before they put it out in the, the trash heap. And I took it home, and I, and I use it at home. Um, for everything from cards to crafts to, you know, each of my kids claimed a drawer. So, you know, it's nice to have. Um, so metadata goes back a really long time. The Mesopotamians used metadata. In fact, they had something called Gurganaku, and the only picture I can find of these Gurganaku are by someone who has not put it out as a Creative Commons license, and fortunately I know him, and I, need, I keep poking at him and saying, please, 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 I want to use this. Um, but I have the link. Um, and they are clay tablets on which were inscribed, guess what, your subjects, your title, your author, what the scroll was about, so you didn't have to pull every single thing off the shelf, because they're obviously much more brittle. Um, and those are available, they are in, they're in one of the British museums, and I can get to the reference, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, so what are we talking about when we talk about control vocabularies and what we're applying in all this great metadata? But this is the, what I call the continuum. And I have this representation of it based on complexity and power. So the more complicated you make something, usually the more powerful it gets. There is a break point, though. Um, so we have at the bottom, folksonomies, which many of you are familiar with in online systems, where anybody gets to tag whatever they want. Um, it provides personalized labels, provided you can remember what you actually used. Um, then you have lists. Again, we see those a lot in forums. When you want to pick a state or country out of a list, um, very useful. Uh, synonym rings to help with equivalency control. Uh, taxonomies, uh, again, doing all of those things, but also, as, as Margie mentioned, the hierarchical system. And you can have both the mono-hierarchical taxonomy, which is where each node can only have one parent, or poly-hierarchical, where it could have more than one parent. Uh, and then thesauri in which you can uh, add associative relationships and scope notes, which are always very useful. Uh, and then ontologies, in which you get to do all of those things um, and more. Um, so an ontology, you get to define your own relationship types. It doesn't have to be just broader than, narrower than, or used for, or see this, or see, see also. Uh, built into the data models, for ontologies are things like transitive properties, uh, things like symmetric properties, functional properties. You can do cardinality, uh, which uh, for those of you who are familiar with databases know is you can say that something has to have at least one thing or can have no more than 10 or can have unlimited uh, things attached to it um, or, or representations of it. You can, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I love best is you can say no. In an ontology, you can say, no, this does not belong over there, um, uh, using a property called disjoint. So um, 
You can also do inferencing and reasoning. And I'm going to get into some of these things a little bit more later, but inferencing basically, in the systems that we're accustomed to working with, you have to explicitly state everything that you want to appear in that vocabulary. In an ontology, because you have inferencing rules, you don't have to explicitly state anything. In fact, in any given ontology, about two-thirds, um, this is a swag guess, no one knows for sure, but we estimate that about two-thirds of the triples, um, which is what a, the basic foundational unit of, a, of an ontology is, are explicitly stated relationships, a subject, a predicate, and an object. So glass contains water, is a triple, uh, that you can model in ontology. And uh, about two-thirds of them are explicitly stated, and about a third of them are inferred. A machine figures out the rest of them. So an example would be if you used uh, the transitive property that I mentioned, um, you can have a class of things we'll call it class A, you can have a class B and a class C. And if we say that class B is a subclass of class A and class C is a subclass of class B, sorry, C is sub to B, then in an ontology that uses that transitive property, the machine knows, because we told it these are all are transitive, C is also a subclass of A. And so, and doing that in Older systems is hard, it's complex, it requires dozens of lines of code to make that happen, whereas in an ontology, it's one line. So ontologies are sort of the next step, and there, there are things beyond it. I mean, the, some of the folks that I've um, been fortunate enough to meet are thinking about what web four, five, and six are gonna look like, um, and some of those logic systems are, they, they're just enough, I mean, to make your mind boggle. So. We're not going to get into that. So I'm going to give you some examples of these things. So uh, tag cloud. You all have seen tag clouds, yeah? OK. So it's kind of useful. But the metaphor I like to use for this is how many of you um, go grocery shopping and um, take a list with you? You write down everything you need. You probably have it organized by your store. So I know in aisle one, I'm going to get you know, my produce. And in aisle two, I'm going to get you know, all those sort of sundries, you know, health and beauty or whatever, and you go on through the story. This is like going grocery shopping without that organized list. You know, it's almost like going grocery shopping when you're hungry and you just kind of grab things at random, whatever looks good. Whatever's on the end of the aisles, you know, that they're, that they're spotlighting, right? These things here, these things in bold, that's what's at the end of the aisles. Useful, but not, not incredibly useful. This is the list. As I said before, you can use it in, um, <coughs> excuse me, in forms. We see these a lot in forms. And it improves precision in your findability because it removes the ability of the user to randomly make things up, to spell things wrong, to use uh, USA or US instead of United States. <coughs> I didn't even put United States in there, so. UK. All right, so, but in a synonym ring, and you could debate whether this is higher, higher in complexity or lower in complexity, they're pretty much, they're not that far off. Synonym rings allow you to give those alternate labels for things. So you can have the official label. So in this case, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is a bit much, even though it's technically correct most systems we use United Kingdom. But if you wanted to be able to get, have a search run and get UK or United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, you can do that. So it increases recall. You frequently don't see this uh, because somebody else has done it behind the scenes. But it's still an important tool in the overall toolkit. Okay, uh, now we start to get into the hierarchical stuff. This is a mono-hierarchical um, taxonomy. So we have the United Kingdom, which I've, I've, I've abbreviated, but it's somewhat eventually narrower than Europe. Uh, and then we have, narrower than that, uh, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And that helps us cluster things. Uh, if you were doing this in search, it would help reduce the amount of hits you got back to any one uh, bucket of information to make it a little bit easier to find things. 
the higher up in the, it, presuming that your system uses subsumption, which is where uh, at any given node in your hierarchy, everything that's below it rolls up. If you're using that, the higher up you go, you have better recall, but you have lower precision. And as you go down, it's an inverse relationship. Uh, most folks that I know uh, doing enterprise search actually prefer to have precision over recall because uh, it's less frustrating for the user, unless you're doing discovery. So if you're in a, a research setting and you need to, and you have somebody come in and ask you a question and it's something you've never worked on before and you want to get the overall picture of things, you want to start up higher to get that sort of worldview and then narrow down. But that's one of the few use cases for choosing recall over precision. I mean, there are, but that's my favorite. Here is um, a polyhierarchical system. So what I've got here is that same thing on the left, but then I've added um, the other places that England exists. So England um, could also, doesn't have to go right under United Kingdom, it can go under Britain or Great Britain, uh, which can also then go under European Union, Group of Eight, United Nations Security Council, and NATO. So now anyone in searching for or browsing data can access England from any number of places. And that um, helps us to ensure that we're getting the customer the information that they need in their own personal workflow, their own work style. And you see this a lot in, in guided search or parametric or faceted search, and DECA does this. Here is our thesaurus. We have our scope note. Now, of course, we have Margie sitting here, so I have to be very careful because um, <laughs> she wrote the standard. Um, <laughs> um, some of the best thesauri that I've ever seen and worked with are those by the Getty. Uh, have any of you? Yeah, Art and Architecture Thesaurus, TGN, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at them, they have a ridiculous amount of information in them. Um, they have scope notes. I mean, how many people actually use scope notes? Um, very, and they have, I mean, they've actually expanded on it quite a little bit, um, gone beyond, above and beyond what they are actually required to do. Uh, so if you're looking for inspiration, start there. Uh, so again, we have our scope notes, we have our use for, we have our see also's, we have our broaders, and well, we don't have any broaders, we have our nowers, but we assume the reciprocal relationship. You see these everywhere. You all work with these all the time. Categorization, classification, search, advanced search, um, and rules-based coding, which apparently none of you are doing. Um, you may be doing it and, if you're, and not know it, um, but I promise you that you're using systems that do it, whether or not you know it. Problem is um, precision and recall gets a little squishier in this kind of system because you're adding those associative relationships. Um, because you're not just going up and down anymore, you can go across. Okay. Trying to put the picture together a little bit. Now, I'm not going to go too far into ontologies because it's a really big subject and I don't want to confuse anybody. So we can start here with our broader than, narrower than. But in an ontology, I can do all of this too. I can create my own relationship types. So. And whereas in a thesaurus, you know, you, one of the rules of thumbs is, is you want things in the hierarchy to be is a kind of part of kind of relationship. So the subclass is a kind of something else. But we don't use those, those actual relationships. We don't say kind of. Well, why not? Well, we know why not, because the systems that we originally were using couldn't handle it. Um, and we were limited by our technical uh, capabilities. Now, we're not limited by technical capabilities anymore, and we can create our own, our own relationships. And we can define them, and we can make them publicly available so that anybody else can use them. So when you go out on the web and you look for an OWL file or an RDFS uh, file or a SCOS file, you'll see that people have defined these things. So, for example, you know, this image has its own URI, so Uniform Resource Indicator, uh, which is sort of the parent, if you will, of URLs, which you're all familiar with. But this image has its own URI, and it can be, and it should be persistent. It shouldn't change ever, kind of like we do with the DOI, the digital object identifiers and whatnot. Um, but so does flag. 
Um, so does official language. So does legislature. And I made these up. And I'm allowed to make them up. And if I document them well, and I make them publicly available, and I take care of the care, you know, I maintain them, I you know, put my time into the care and feeding of them, then uh, they can become well enough known by whatever communities want to use them. Uh, which goes, and I'll talk a bit more about the importance of authority and provenance and trust uh, in these systems, which is a skill that is lacking right now in the industry, but it's something that we as librarians were trained to do and have a great deal of experience doing. Um, so obviously there's things in here that I haven't put in. I haven't actually talked about the transitive, the functional, the symmetric, the disjoint, the domains, the ranges, and all that sort of stuff. There's a world of capabilities available to you uh, in ontologies. Um, if you want to look into it more, a book that I would recommend is called uh, The Semantic Web for the Working Ontologist. It's by a gentleman named Dean Alamang if, and uh, Jim Hendler. And if any of you are at Taxonomy Boot Camp the next couple days, Dean's going to be speaking. So, and he will be around. Uh, so you should definitely take the opportunity to meet him. Okay. Any questions so far before I move off of uh, most of this stuff? My very quick overview. I'm sorry? The author, um, Dean Alamang, A-L-L-E-M-A-N-G. Uh, he is one of the co-founders of Top Quadrant, which uh, develops ontologies for NASA and a bunch of other organizations, as well as uh, software. And his co-author is Jim Hendler. Jim is the co-chair of the Tetherless World Constellation, which is a large um, linked data semantic web research project at RPI. And he was one of the original authors of the the base standards for the semantic web with the W3C. With Deborah McGinnis, who used to be at Stanford, who some of you may know. Um, I think that was it I wanted to talk about on this slide. The, one of the tenets of the semantic web is anyone can say anything about anything. Good, right? Bad, right? Um, so yes, you can. I could go out there and I could say anything I want, and it could be complete nonsense, but I can say it, which is why there are working groups now. They knew they were going to need uh, the authority, the provenance, and the trust layers. In fact, it's in the semantic web layer cake that the W3C has published, but they haven't really done any work on it yet. Um, there's only just now an incubator group uh, spun up around provenance, but they're really only talking about provenance of, of, of following the paper trail. They're not, look, they're not thinking of it in the bigger sense of provenance than any of us have, who have taken any archives classes are thinking about it yet, yet. But as you can probably guess, I have a big mouth and I'm not gonna let that go on for too long. So um, <laughs> this is an example of an ontology out on the web. It's called Open Psych. Have any of you heard of the Psych Project, Doug Lanat's artificial intelligence project that's been going on for 30 something years now? Um, they have made part of that, it's a very large ontology and uh, they have made part of it available um, for free. It's called OpenPsych. And so what it does is it gives each concept a unique identifier. So this is just an, a, a GUID. It's a, it's a nonsense string. Uh, but then you also have your preferred term you're in, in English. So you can have multiple preferred terms, one for each language. Uh, and then you have your aliases, so your synonyms, right? So we're all, nothing new here. Um, and then you have your text blurb. I'm sorry, this isn't very readable. Uh, you'll all get the slides later. Uh, and then you have, it's an instance of, so the United Kingdom is an instance of certain distant countries with interest in the something. I can't even read it. Um, uh, but so what, it, it's, what it's kind of, um, where it's entry on Wikipedia is, it's also the same as this thing at another ontology and this other thing at some other ontology and this other thing at some other ontology. Why you do that same as that linking is so that you can search across all of those ontologies at once. So one link will allow you to run a search across databases everywhere. You might not even know when you run a query all the databases you're searching, all of the ontologies you're searching, um, which is called the open, there's an open world assumption. So in a closed world system, you have to explicitly state everything. 
If you don't state something explicitly, it doesn't exist. In an open world, just because something hasn't been explicitly stated doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It is possible. So what, and I'll get your question in a second. So what that means is that, and, and there's pros and cons for doing it each way. Inside the firewall, you're probably frequently going to want a closed system. And in terms of authority and provenance and trust, because those models and those rules bases aren't built yet, you're probably going to want to close off your systems so that you're not getting really crazy data. But if you want to do discovery and see everything that's possibly out there, you want an open world. And when you're doing um, forecasting, strategic forecasting, for example, you want to know what those possibilities are. You want to know that some region your company is thinking about building a manufacturing plant in has really bad weather. Or the soil isn't good enough to, to take the weight of a, a train, of a, rail, of a railroad, for example. Um, and if you have all those things modeled in, you can do that. And there are, in fact, I'm not making this stuff up. There is, in fact, a project out of the UK that is linked together companies diverse as a technical company, a financial company, a shipping company. And they're sharing their data. And they're learning really fascinating things about how to improve their workflows and their supply chains. So you had a question. So this is an explicit, yes. Sorry. So is there, she asked, thank you. Uh, she asked if there was a way to identify these other same as entities ahead of time. So there are search engines now. Um, I think in my backup slides I have an example of one. One is called Syndice and one is called Sigma that actually search ontologies. They're just like Google, um, but for this kind of stuff. Um, they're just not incredibly well known outside of the circles, the inner circles yet, I guess. Um, so, but right now the number of data sets is small enough that most people building these actually know about a good chunk of them. Not all of them by any stretch. Um, the International Semantic Web Conference holds a billion triple challenge uh, the last couple years. So there are, so again, don't forget I said the foundation of any ontology is a triple, the subject predicate object. And there are systems that have billions of triples. Which for enterprises that think, can this stuff scale? The answer is yes. Still needs some work, but so did you know Oracle and IBM and all the you know SAP and all the other big systems when they were new. Margie. Is there a she asked if there's a crosswalk from this to open URL. Um, I, you know, I can't say for 100% confidently that there is, but I know I know that there are a lot of crosswalks and, tr crosswalks and transforms to a variety of different library applications. I just don't know if that's one of them. So um, there's a lot of work going on in libraries in this space. And I actually have some slides that will show you at least one of them. Um, they love librarians. Um, and it, it's not really surprising. In fact, the first um, semantic web activity lead at the World Wide Web Consortium left OCLC. He was a senior Eric Miller was a senior research scientist at OCLC and went to work for the W3C to lead up the semantic web activity. So they, you know, they get it. They love us. Trust me. They love me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, okay, so let's go on. So here's another one. This is DBpedia, which is an extraction of facts from, from Wikipedia, primarily, and, and other things, but primarily of Wikipedia. And so you see this is about the United Kingdom. So this is the subject. Here's the property. This is going to be the predicate of our triple. And then here's the value. So, it, so um, United Kingdom. Um, oh, that's not very good. Uh, <laughs> um, location of something that MTV did, apparently. Um, but again, like I said, it's out of Wikipedia. Um, here's another one, Umble. Um, and this is their graphical representation rather than what I just showed you, which is the text base. Um, subject concept explorer. And the information, I'm probably going to, in here, gives you the name and the description. Who's this? Um, so, why do we do this? We want to improve findability, just like in everything else that we do. Uh, we want to improve um, reuse of data and repurposing of data, um, greater efficiency. So it's all those soft dollar metrics. 
um, in that sense in terms of reducing time spent looking for things. You know, we had that rule of thumb, if you spent more than 15 minutes looking for it, come ask your librarian. Um, it's for sharing. Obviously, if you're publishing this stuff out on the web, you're sharing it. Now, um, well, you may have heard Tim Berners-Lee talked about open link data, and wouldn't it be great to have all the data out there and free and open? Not, a lot of our organizations aren't going to go for that. It's not how it has to be. It can be completely hidden behind your firewall. And it doesn't have to be a two-way street. It's great if it is, but you can have an ontology that is inside your firewall, links to other things outside your firewall, but doesn't let them back in. You can do that. Um, so don't get any, so if you talk to a management or a leader, leadership executive, whatnot, and they say, no, 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 we can't, we can't link our data, you can close your world. Um, we j so findability, reuse, sharing. Um, I suppose I, ought to, I should do the animations while I'm talking. Um, but most importantly is the analytics. And this is just, a, this is just an image. This is, doesn't mean anything. But there is a query language for ontologies called Sparkle, uh, which is kind of like querying text. The same, so the same way you can query a database using SQL, you can query ontologies using Sparkle. So you can query your subjects, your predicates, your objects. You can query, so in a, in a database table, the subject predicate object matches to your unique, the subject would be your unique key, so usually your first column. Your um, predicate is your column header, and your object is the data in the cell. Uh, is how you would is usually how you would end up representing that triple. And whereas in a database you can sort and fil uh, you know sort and filter with SQL, you know select all of something from this table where these conditions are met. You can do the same thing with Sparkle using these text-based files, but you can also do it. Um, with stuff out in the web. There's things called Sparkle endpoints, and you just, you know, invoke a Sparkle endpoint and you run your query. Um, so again, you're not limited to data certain databases. You can add a number of them. Um, okay, so this is, um, it's really important that our organizations actually think about doing this kind of work sooner than later. Just like a lot of companies in the mid-90s, late-90s thought, I don't know about this web thing. It's going to go anywhere. But then they started squatting on their domain names so somebody else didn't get it. Um, you know, so that Coca-Cola didn't have a site that said, Coke's, you know, Coke's awful. Um, when I worked at Dow Jones, um, I used to go pecking around the ontology to see what was out there. This is, again, from DBpedia, which is an extraction from Wikipedia. And I'm scrolling, and there's a lot of information on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's, you know, it's brand, you know, it's iconic, you know, financial index. And right way down here, it says the Dow Jones Industrial Average is a type of Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> Dunder Mifflin, for those of you who watch The Office, is a fictional paper, go you know, office supply company. <laughs> do I want this? Does my marketing organization want this to exist? Does, do, do my legal staff, compliance officers? No. And so this data is out there. The organizations that you care about, go look and see, um, and where you can fix it. Um, this one is Wikipedia, so that's pretty easy to fix. Well, you know, Wikipedia, they always roll back changes, but you can try. Um, you're going to have to need, you're going to need to worry about it. Because, and <laughs> it's a really good source of competitive intelligence, okay? This uh, next slide is that semantic web layer cake that the W3C um, produces, talking about all these different uh, components. Um, and I, I don't need to go into all of them right now, but just so that you know what the kinds of things that they're thinking about, the kinds of things that ontologies are moving into. Now, unfortunately, in this particular version, they don't have SCOS. SCOS was approved a couple months ago, Simple Knowledge Organization System. It is, in effect, the uh, semantic webification of Z39. Margie will disagree, but um, you know, it's their attempt at doing a similar kind of work. SCOS 2 will be much better. Yes. Um, question. SCOS, Simple Knowledge Organization System. Um, it's not on this diagram. I don't like that it's not on this diagram, but the diagram would get really, really crazy if everything was on it. 
because I think that SCOS may be undervalued. I think that SCOS, because it's relatively simple, it has the same kind of conventions that we're used to in a thesaurus, um, a little bit different. Um, but it does broader than narrower than, it does exact match, it does um, broader equivalent, and a variety of other things. It's much easier to learn than OWL, the web ontology language, and RDFS, or RDF, which is um, a resource description framework. Those are pretty complex models. SCOS is much easier. And we can take existing systems and port them into SCOS much easier. And they, right now, SCOS will accomplish a lot of what uh, organizations want and need to do without having to worry about the complexities of OWL. So the first version of OWL has three different versions. There's OWL Lite, there's OWL DL, which stands for description logics, and there's OWL Full, and, trying to, and they don't all work together, really, um, which is bizarre, uh, because one of the tenets is all this stuff should work together. Uh, and, you know, they learned a lot after doing that first version. OWL 2, which is in final, the final stages now, um, is done, is, um, is much improved, um, but is still more than a lot of organizations need. So take a look at that. But so there's also things I haven't talked about. So RIF, which is about rules, um, the unifying logic, the cryptography and security. So this is the first time I've actually mentioned security. How do you secure this data? How do you say, I want to put this thing outside my firewall, but I only want my customers to look at it. Um, so that work needs to happen. Um, proof. How can I prove that what you're using is what I actually published? You know, how do you know that a hacker ha or a cracker hasn't got at your, at your data? Trust. How do I know that the source that I'm using is actually an authoritative source? Same way that when we're selecting items for a physical collection, we think very carefully about whether or not a particular book or video or disc or object or whatever is by a source that who should be talking about the subject. And then they added the user interface and applications layer. This, is a, this was not in the original layer cake. Um, and it's still one of the challenges. Some of the applications that are being built are not particularly user friendly. They're built by hardcore geeks for other hardcore geeks. Um, and they have recognized the need for figuring out how to make this stuff easily consumed and used by the average knowledge worker. Um, so is there a lot of data out there? Yeah. So they started doing this graph in March of 2008. Um, Richard Saganiak and Chris Beiser started doing this, and it's Creative Commons licensed, and the, there's a link to it there. Um, in March 2008, this was, these are linked data sets. These are ontologies. Um, US Census data is out there. A lot of BBC stuff, a lot of music stuff. FOF is friend of a friend. It's a schema for defining relationships amongst people. Um, Flickr exports, um, so there's the RDF book mashup. Review is a sort of, uh, just like it sounds, it's a review site where you can submit reviews for things. Um, Gutenberg. But it's gotten bigger. Magnatune, which um, there's now an iPhone app. There's an app for that. I actually have an iPhone app, for, which is an OWL, uh, an ontology explorer, so there really is an app for that. Um, so in September 2008, it got this big. Um, Crunchbase, which is, uh, if any of you read TechCrunch, is part of your blog role. Um, what else is in here? That's cool. Yep. Geonames, which is really cool. Um, GovTrack, which is on the other one. Umble. March 2008, uh, 2009, one year later. And they added the colors, which was really nice. Uh, so you see, so, you know, MySpace. Um, pro uh, so Project Gutenberg moved up here. Um, look at all the pharma and biology stuff. Um, also of interest, given our sponsors, so Virtuoso is here. Freebase is here. Um, Sightseer is here. ACM and IEEE. So look at, everyone in this room knows for darn sure that IEEE and ACM are not giving stuff away. <laughs> um, but they have their metadata available. Um, National Science Foundation. 
Um, and then July of this year. They took out the colors because I think it just got a little too much. But um, you can use this data. You can build applications on this data. You can analyze the data. You can just explore the data. Do whatever you want with it. It's out there. It's available. Use it. And it's growing every day. So just so you know what the key is, the circle size um, indicates the number of triples in the data set. So the bigger the circle, the bigger the, bigger the data set. Um, the really large ones have greater than a billion triples. It's a pretty good amount of data. Um, the arrow directions indicate where the relationships are. So remember how I said the, the linkings can go either both ways or one way? So the arrows will tell you if it's a one-way link or if it goes both ways. Um, and the arrow thickness indicates the number of shared triples across between those data sets, how many things are really the same as between those data sets. Um, one site that's not, one data set that's not in here because it's really new, it only was announced two weeks ago at ISWIC, the International Semantic Web Conference, is the New York Times has begun publishing data. The New York Times Index, um, which as you know is a very old and very well maintained uh, system, they have started publishing the index as linked data. So they've put out 5,000 people names right now. So what does that mean for you? That means that you can, in any system that you want, use as your authoritative record of source the New York Times version of that person's name. Why is that convenient? So think about Qaddafi. They have 40 different ways of how you spell that name. You don't have to do that work. It's there. If you and your organization decide, yes, we trust the New York Times, we think they do good work, we think they do authoritative work and do their homework, you can use that data. You do not have to recreate that. You take the URI because it's persistent. So it's data.newyorktimes.com slash something. And you use that URI in your system to define your content. Um, there, are work, there is work being done at cultural heritage organizations, including libraries. I'm going to show you a couple of those. Now. Well, I'm not going to show them to you because I think we're going to run out of time. But there are links to these in this presentation, so you can go take a look at them. Multimedia and is an e-culture project. Um, it's still a little bit buggy, but it's, um, what you can do is go and explore concepts. And it's, it's like a great big subject thesaurus, but you can explore concepts around a variety of different multimedia, uh, sorry, cultural organizations, primarily uh, European-based. So you can look up things like medieval um, bookcases. It's, it's in there. Um, and, and, but get back images, text, uh, links. So check that one out. Uh, another one is BBC Music. Has anybody played with this? This is actually, um, the BBC has been doing a lot of really cool semantic stuff for quite a number of years now. This, so you have your browse by genre. So that's, we're all used to that, browsing by genre. That's nothing, you know, really out of left field. Artists played on the BBC in the last seven days. So they've taken their playlist database and mashed it up with artist information. So in the last seven days, they've apparently played, or from when I took the screenshot, they apparently played a lot of Empire of the Sun, Friendly Fires, The Killers, Lily Allen, Green Day, um, and whatnot. But this is a scroll bar, and I can scroll that bar and go down and see what else has been played in the last seven days. So I'm guessing that in the charts in the UK, during the time that I took this snapshot off my computer, that they were big. Um, <coughs> So, but it also then will pull in top news stories. Um, it will also pull in music radio programs. So their scheduling system is also linked. And it gets their data. So obviously it's hard. Um, I took this screenshot in case we weren't on the net. Um, but what you can do is you click something, it takes data out of Music Brains and Wikipedia, so it'll give you an artist bio. It will link you to the part of the, the Wikipedia system or whatever that has their discography. And the BBC didn't have to spend the money to create all that content, but they get to use it. Okay, one more that hopefully you all will like. European Digital Library. 48 libraries of the EU are sharing, not their entire collections yet, they're still working on getting them all in, into the system. Um, but you have access to all those collections. And they don't all use the exact same tool to manage their collections. The beauty of it is if you, use this, if you share the standards, 
You don't have to use the same system. I could write my on Ooh, sorry. <laughs> I could write my ontology in um, in a text file. Somebody else could put their linked data in a Google spreadsheet, and somebody else could do it in any number of systems. Synaptica did it. You guys do it in Data Harmony, right? Um, and that's okay. You use whatever works for you. So you reduce the learning curve and you reduce the frustration level. Um, so the link is down here. It's, really, it's, it's a really fun, cool site. I just picked UK because all my other examples were UK. Um, but it does link out to the British Library. Why do we do this? Because we all have lots of really wonderful objects, but if they have no metadata, it's like a secret garden. You gotta, you gotta know where it is to find it. Or have a little Robin tell you, apparently. Um, objects with can't be bothered metadata. How many of us have run across things that have been cataloged by someone who really didn't care? Or really didn't want to be a cataloger? Right? That's like going through a maze or a labyrinth trying to find stuff. And then lots of unmarked repositories. Databases that you have no idea what's really in there. You may, you may know, well, I, I know there's some information in there. So, I mean, it could be as simple as your Active Directory, your LDAP in your organization. You know it contains people data, but you also know that IT is probably using it for 100 other things. And so while you know you can find names and extensions and office locations, usually, right, if you were to actually look at the schema, you'd probably find there are, you know, 200 more elements. Um, silos are okay. Think about the original purpose. They are meant to hold a specific kind of grain and keep it safe. That's fine. But you've got to know how to get in and out of it. So when people say, we, you know, so when I hear organizations say, we have to break down these silos. Well, no, no, you don't. You need to define what's in the silo. Organizations that think that to move to this kind of system to manage their unstructured and structured content, because you can do both, in these, with these systems. I haven't talked about RDFA and those kinds of things yet. But they are afraid that they means they're going to have to re-architect, buy new software, completely overhaul their enterprise architecture. It's not true. Um, there, are, there are ways of doing it without doing all that migration. You just have to make some tweaks, some additions to your existing sets. So a database. You can transform a database into RDF, for example. Um, uh, there's a, a something called REST, representational state transfer. If you have a RESTful architecture, you don't have to change everything. You can let everybody use whatever it is they're comfortable with and keep going and link the data. Um, there's even a company called Cambridge Semantics, which has built uh, an add-in for uh, Excel. You could manage all this stuff in Excel, but in the back end in their shared server, it's all semantic, so you can use it. So. It, it does bring up some problems. And I actually don't have a slide on problems. I'm standing here thinking I didn't do a slide on the problems of it. Um, so I'll do that because my next slide, according to my notes here, is benefits. So some of the problems, though, is that you have to make sure that you get, you have to make sure that all of those consuming systems use the same core control vocabulary. Now it's okay. You can have local annotations, local extensions to your core ontology. Um, so if you have departments that are fighting about what to call something, fine. Don't, don't get caught in the, in the ruckus. It's ridiculous. You're going to waste time and not get anything done. Pick something. Whoever your editor-in-chief of your control vocabulary, your taxonomy, thesaurus, ontology, whatever you want to call it, just have them pick something or give it a completely nonsensical string of characters. And then you say, here's the preferred term for this group. <laughs> you know, so just as you can do preferred terms for la in each language, just say, here's the preferred term for the engineers, and here's the preferred term for IT. Nobody cares. If they really mean the same concept, you can treat them as being the same thing. Um, but making that happen is usually a challenge, uh, making sure they're all using the same thing. But it's, it's mostly about change management. Technically, it shouldn't be that hard. So what are the benefits? Uh, these are all the benefits. Interoperability, delivery channels, consistent, dynamic, ROI. But we want to get into some of the career opportunity stuff. Uh, communication clarity. Shannon Weaver model. Semantic web has the same kinds of um, foundational elements um, as, as this model. 
uh, in terms of transport and coding, noise reduction, feedback, and all that sort of stuff. The various protocols, so XML, RDF, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Why do we want to communicate clearly? You guys know this stuff. Okay. Way back in 2003, somewhere, somewhere 2003, 4, I was working at Raytheon. I was building very large taxonomies for Raytheon because uh, I was working, I'd left the library and had moved into um, IT. Um, don't say I defected because I've actually had somebody, a former colleague at Raytheon said, so what are you doing now? It was at an SLA event. He said, so how's the library? I'm like, oh, I, I left the library. I'm in IT now. And he literally just turned, he said, traitor, and turned around and walked away. Um, it's not the case. IT doesn't hate you. IT, trust me, these people love librarians. Um, they do now. They might not always, but they do now. Um, so this is who I thought the dream team was for taxonomies back then. Um, to put it in context, I was working in uh, the Verity system because that was our enterprise search engine, and uh, we had some content management systems, portals, a variety of other things around Raytheon. And this is who I thought was on my dream team. So information scientists, us, you know, um, cognitive scientists, linguists, uh, programmers, database people, blah, blah, blah. And we didn't get everything we wanted, but whoever does. So I rethought this earlier this year. I still want information scientists, but I also want information architects and user experience designers to make sure that the systems are usable, that those connections make sense for people other than the subject matter experts. Uh, cognitive scientists, still important. Um, linguists roll up under that bucket in my mind. They, don't, they might not always agree, but I lump them there because it's my ontology and I can. Um, the developers, obviously, so we need the developers to actually build the applications that are gonna use all these great control vocabularies that we're building. Business analysts to make sure we're actually solving real world problems. Uh, whoever your leader is who can help you with change management. The project manager, you gotta, find, you gotta be careful with that one. I had a project manager who used to call me up in the morning and say, what are you gonna work on today? And I said, oh, I think I'll do A, B, and C. And he called me up at the end of the day and said, what did you do today? I said, I did A, and I started to look at B, but then I had to do Y and Z. And he'd get frustrated with me. I said, well, once I got into B, I realized I had to do Y and Z first. Um, and needless to say, he uh, was removed from my project. Um, security experts, because that stuff is not quite formalized yet. And legal advisors. So I don't know if any of you were following any of the New York Times stuff uh, of late. There's been some hubbub about the fact that they did OWL same as from their entity to something in, in DBpedia because some people think that the entailments, so they put it, they licensed it under Creative Commons, and there are some people who say because they said this is the same as that, then the copyright laws follow. It's a big debate. New York Times lawyers don't think that's the case. I don't happen to think it's the case, but a lot of people in the community got in a big, ooh, it was a big, big ruckus a couple weeks ago. So you need some good legal people who understand intellectual property and copyright. Um, I wasn't going to include this, but I left it in. I wavered on whether or not. This really interesting article by Brian Vickery. It's at this URL. And it's a very long article. And it's about controlled vocabularies. It's actually a very good article. Taking a couple pieces out of context, uh, in the, I believe this is in the first paragraph. So he says, to organize knowledge is to gather together what we know into comprehensive organized structure to show its parts and their relationships. This is the work of scholars and encyclopedists. Then the second thing I extracted was, uh, our tasks are to make knowledge, whether organized or unorganized, available to those who seek it, to store it in an accessible way, and to provide tools and procedures that make it easier for people to find what they seek in those stores. Sound familiar? Sound like what you do? Um, it is a good article. And I used to agree with the statement, this is the work of scholars and encyclopedists. I don't anymore. Um, it hampered my personal career aspirations. Um, I think that that is, in many circles, now also the job of information scientists and librarians. Don't think we have to be limited to just making it accessible. Um, I, I mean, I do agree uh, that our job is to make knowledge available, using tools that make it easier for people to find and use what they seek. And sometimes it's good to stay in the box. And for those people who want to stay in the box, great, more power to you. But if you don't, don't. And sometimes you need to think outside the box. Um, this is from the SLA um, report 
Shoemaker and Talley did. It was funded in 2007. They just published it earlier this summer. I'm not sure if you saw it, Embedded Librarians. Are any of you embedded working with an or in a group or organization or a department instead of actually in a library or a research center? Um, one of the things that they found in researching embedded librarians is that they collaborate and contribute to the customer, customer group's electronic communications uh, and collaborative workspaces. That's, an ontology is very collaborative. Um, you can have a whole bunch of people contribute to it and um, have things put in as candidate terms and then have your ontologist, your librarian, your control, whoever is in charge of your control vocabulary actually then go through and approve and make sure everything is quote unquote correct. Um, um, and the other thing though is that in other web-based workspaces, think about how much they'll love you if you give them something that they can embed in their applications instead of something they just read and use. It's an interesting notion. Um, so, I wanted to use that cartoon, the actual cartoon with the librarian sitting in the desk and the librarian tag is in the trash and it says search engine. You've all seen that cartoon? Yeah. Unfortunately, it cost 50 bucks a pop to use, so I said no. So, it was cute. I loved it. I had it hanging on my wall when I was in the library, but I'm, I'm thinking more, more than that. We are meant to help solve real problems, help research and analyze actual data sets that can help deliver a product, help reduce costs, help plan strategy for an overall organization. All right, you guys have seen these, right? The competencies? Okay. I've dug out some ones that I think are directly applicable. Um, and you can, you can make use of these existing or future. So you all know that AACR2 is, AACR2 is going away, right? Dead, yay, no more tipping in nonsense. Whoever actually tipped anything in. Um, RDA and other tools are coming. RDFA is being used a lot, Dublin Core. Um, Dublin Core and, R and RDFA are ways of embedding um, semantics inside of documents. So in your web pages, for example, you can use RDFA to span actual content. We need to start thinking about curating the content, not just the container. So what do I mean by that? You catalog a book. You catalog any, an object, right? Even a web resource is still an object. What about the content in that resource? The stuff that people actually want to get at. Why are we not curating that? We can do that now. Okay, so B1. Insert ontology there. Really, it's just the next thing. Um, B2, builds a dynamic collection of information resources. Well, ontologies are incredibly dynamic, especially when you link them up to other ontologies. Uh, in fact, there is a method now that you can embed a query into your ontology to create new ontology data, um, uh, which is really fascinating. So you could not even know what's in your own ontology. Whether or not you want to do that is up to you. Um, but it's pretty cool. Um, so it's very dynamic. And I think we rely, in many cases, too much on serendipity. Serendipity's cool, but you can't run your business on it. Um, love the word, make it happen more often. Don't wait for it to happen. Um, that's like two ships passing in a night, doesn't work. So C3, researches, analyzes, and synthesizes information into accurate answers or actionable information for clients and ensures that clients have the tools or capabilities to immediately apply these. Once you put the factoids in your ontology, they can be analyzed. They can be pushed out um, um, in, ad, in ad hoc or scheduled transactions. Um, you can serialize them, so you could use them in dashboards. How many of you guys have dashboards or portal or portlets or whatever SharePoint calls them? Um, RSS feeds. Um, into other databases, into your CMS systems, into your digital asset management systems, into your library catalogs if you wanted. Um, a lot of libraries are including Amazon data in their, in their OPACs, yeah? Okay. Why not include other information from other sources? Um, don't get locked into one, to one vendor. All right, what else? D1, assess, selects, and applies current and emerging information tools and creates information access and delivery solutions. So um, how many of you have integrated uh, taxonomies and thesaurus into other systems other than your OPACs? 
Oh, I know you did, Margie. <laughs> How many of you using RSS in your libraries? Anybody doing RSS feeds? Okay. Um, digital object identifiers? Who's using those? Anybody? Ooh, okay. Um, you guys are in Silicon Valley. Come on. Um, Dublin Core. Anybody using Dublin Core? A little bit? Um, as these systems get more integrated, as the technologies evolve, you'll find people asking for it. And you'll find tool providers that are using it, right, that are enabling it. Um, D2 applies expertise in databases, indexing metadata, and information analysis and synthesis to improve information retrieval and use in the organization. Everyone that I've asked in the Semantic Web, Semantic Tech community loves librarians. They think that these kinds of skills are exactly what they need. I know a lot of people who work in the semantic technology industry who can code like, like mad. They can create um, really complex um, systems, but they don't really get how to, un they get the models, the data models, and the logic of it, the rhetoric, but they need help getting the data in. When it comes to actually applying it, we need people who really understand how to build controlled vocabularies and how to manage information. They're building these great systems to do this. Now they need the people to actually come in and use it. There are a lot of applications. So the folks at Talus, for example, a company out of the UK, they're a big library vendor, primarily in Europe, but they are also a big semantic web vendor. Um, again, I mentioned Eric Miller. Um, there's, there's a lot of um, yin and yang. It's a, very, it's a very good, healthy relationship. Um, so D3, protects the information privacy of clients and maintains awareness of and responses, responses to new challenges to privacy. Like I said before, privacy, security, province, authority, trust, those are things that still need work in, in the standards and the models that, that people are using, um, but the work is happening. All of, the, all of us who are good at that need to get involved. And so, I mean, there are things that you can do. Um, there's still time to have an impact. Um, and then D4 maintains current awareness of emerging technologies. Well, you're all here, so. <laughs> Librarians have really been on the forefront of a lot of new technologies, historically, if we think about it. Um, and being aware of this stuff is, is important. All right, so now some of the smaller job stuff. So um, information architect. Anybody consider themselves an IA? User experience designer, anyone? Yeah. We need help in that area. So if you, can, if you think you might want to be an IA, lots of need. Um, how do you design for n-dimensional space in traditionally 2D or even 3D systems? That's what ontology is. It's n-dimensional. Um, here's an example of a job posting. Um, here's another one, but since none of you are IAs, you can read this online later. Um, information scientists, they, we need all of these capabilities that I've been talking about all night. Um, so for example, start looking for things that say ontologist. Start looking for things that say taxonomy too. Um, I have a client right now who uh, came to me because they needed a really big enterprise taxonomy. Okay, I can do that get in there, start talking to them, and they're talking about how, well, we want to model down to the verb. Okay, control vocabulary is using nouns. Yeah, we know, but we want the verb. We want it to be dynamic. Okay. Um, and what are you going to do with this? Well, we're going to write a rule that says if this happens, then that. So you need a rule space. Yeah. You need an ontology. Have you ever heard of ontology? Uh, tell me more. <laughs> they were not going to be satisfied with what they were going to get from a taxonomy. And that's where we're going to start, absolutely, and build it out from there. Uh, and there are, there are pieces that are only going to be a taxonomy, and there are pieces that are only going to need to be at the, the source level, and there's going to be pieces that are going to need to be full-blown ontologies with rules bases. Um, so look for that kind of uh, job as well, if you're interested in getting into this space. Um, because more often than not, you'll end up doing that work. I don't think, I, you know, there are still fewer of these jobs available, but they, they are out there. Um, if you are on Twitter, um, Alexandra Fox um, has a Twitter account now that just posts uh, librarian job 
uh, job postings. She retweets them. Um, and I'm blanking on the name of her handle at the moment, but I can look it up for anybody who wants it later, or I'll, or I'll point it out on my Twitter stream. Um, and then, of course, the other thing, though, is it's the jack-of-all-trades job. This is where, if you want to get into this work, unfortunately, you still got to look a lot in these kinds of postings. Here's an example of one. A lot in academia. Knowledge manager. No surprise. Knowledge analyst is another one. What kinds of companies are doing this stuff? I didn't really get into in the here's oh sorry here's another one senior manager front end engineer. But this doesn't have a heck it, it's not heavy tech. Um, research associate. Um, I can also point out the universities if you're interested in learning more. So um, here I'll go back. But jo uh, companies that are interested in this stuff right now. Uh, financial companies are interested in right now because the SEC last year mandated that they have to use XBRL. XBRL is being transformed to RDF, which is one of the W3's semantic standards. Um, and so they need to understand this very large schema, very large ontology with a, in English, 17,000 node taxonomy. It's bigger in other languages and smaller in some other languages. Um, so they need help in this area. Um, publishing. Uh, somewhat in academia and education. Uh, biotech, pharma, lots, lots of this kind of work going on, uh, if you're interested in that. Uh, software development companies that are interested in getting into the semantic space. Uh, so there's a lot of startups in this area. Um, there's the high nails. If you go to the W3C's uh, Semantic Web Activity page, they have an education and outreach group, and there are actually use cases that you can read. So you'll get an understanding of which kinds of organizations. Lots of cultural heritage, obviously, uh, organizations are into this stuff. Um, Google and Yahoo now index RDFA to improve search results, which RDFA is a sort of a portion of RDF, which so you can embed RDF tags inside of uh, XHTML, but since the whole brouhaha with that, so and now HTML. It's really just so you have your href tags, for example, and you just add an extra little attribute. And then you're semantic. It's very easy. So the RDFA primer is available at the W3 site if you're interested, in, as is the SCOS primer for those of you who wanted to uh, learn more about SCOS. Um, so universities. There's um, RPI, Rensselaer, Stanford, uh, University of Maryland, um, Derry in Galway is a group that does a lot of this stuff. Um, uh, Michigan is starting to get more into this space, the library school. Um, and then a variety of other non-English speaking organizations, obviously. Um, Semantic Technology Conference is a good thing to come to if you're interested in this space. It's been in here, it's been here at the Fairmont for the last four years, but they're moving back to San Francisco next June. Um, Web 3.0 conferences, um, Taxonomy Bootcamp, which is this week, which is why I'm here. Um, there's a variety of websites, Semantic Universe, SemanticWeb.org, uh, and those things as well. So um, as you saw, I'm, I'm done after an hour, so thank you very much for bearing with me. Um, anybody have any questions? Or did I just burn you out? It's a big topic, I mean, and I, you know what I mean? It's, it's just really hairy. Yeah. My Twitter handle is CJM Connor, so C-J-M-C-O-N-N-O-R-S. That is my nick pretty much everywhere. If you want to find me anywhere, that's where you're going to find me. Slide share, Twitter, yeah, social networks, whatever. Um, any other questions? Yeah. In the organizations that you've worked with, where in the organization does the um, impetus come to do this kind of project? Mm -hmm. So um, I did some stuff in the, so the, yes, he's reminding me to repeat your question. Where in the organization does, is the impetus for doing this kind of project? So. Um, when I, so when I was right out of library school, I worked at a dot-com, you know, before the first bust. We were organizing websites, and that was the point of the dot-com. Um, the, when I was at Raytheon, 
started in, you know, I started in the libraries, but then I quickly moved into IT as part of search, as an enterprise search and then content management project. When I was adding to it, it was uh, for content management. Um, that was the group that, uh, that was interested in it there. At Dow Jones, obviously, because they have the Dow Jones Intelligent Index, formerly the Factiva Intelligent Index, um, and the really vast, I mean, there's a, there's a taxonomy of, of the securities. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of nodes. It's, it's big. Um, so that came from a analyst, more of an editorial need. You know, they wanted to report on subsectors of, of the financial industry, so they, they really had no choice but to do that. But they used a hybrid platform, and I didn't talk about artificial intelligence in, the, in NL, natural language processing in this space versus ontology building. NLP and AI are very important in this space. Um, don't think that I'm here just saying you have to build ontology and that's the only way to do it. You need a hybrid system because it's not efficient for a human to do all this work all by themselves. Um, but that's obviously a topic for another time. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah, any other questions? No? Okay. If you have any other questions, email me. Um, you can go to the, my, my uh, website at Trivium RLG. Um, use the contact form. Send in a send me a question. Maybe I'll blog, a, <laughs> blog an answer for you, or I'll just reply on email. Um, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it, and thank you for dinner and having me. Thank you.